Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. 912 Ambulance, 75-year-old male, back pain, 211 Silver Hollow Road. We focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. 0933-5632. Here's your host, Jaron Jarrell. Hey guys, welcome back to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. I hope everybody has been well. Hope everybody's doing what they can, staying strong mentally and physically through what we're going through these days. I know we've been in quite the hiatus. I haven't put out any content. I've been kind of slammed in overworking myself in other areas of my job. So we're back at it this week with a um, a fun topic. I know this topic's been done on other podcasts, but as you know, the premise of this podcast is to put out information for the beginner paramedic, and I believe this is something that we do need to know, and I feel is very important to know as a beginner paramedic. So the topic this week is going to be on pulmonary embolism. So I don't know about anyone else, but my educational pulmonary embolisms was not a lot. Um, They told us we could diagnose it off an EKG. Later on, I find out that's helpful to know, but doesn't actually give you a diagnosis. And this is actually a common diagnosis in the field and in the hospital. It's just something we miss a lot. So pulmonary embolisms are going to be something we encounter in the pre-hospital field or maybe during an interfacility facility taking someone to get interventional radiology or going to a larger hospital. Although we may not think a PE as a common clinical issue, it happens more than what we think, and it actually carries a pretty high morbidity and mortality rate. So around 600,000 people are diagnosed, and about 60 to 200,000 of those people die each year. It's actually the third leading cause of cardiovascular death behind heart disease and stroke. So PEs are commonly missed because they have such broad signs and symptoms and we're focused on so much more, you know, strokes and heart attacks, and we kind of forget about the PE. And unfortunately, in the pre-hospital field, we can't really do a lot where there's not a lot of interventions, but it's really good to recognize it and get them to definitive care as quickly as possible. These people people usually crunk in the first two to three hours without treatment, especially if they have one of those massive PEs that's going to affect their blood flow. So let's go over a basic definition of what a pulmonary embolism is. So it's a blood clot or a DVT that originates in the lower part of the body, so the lower extremities or the pelvis, and travels up to the lungs and gets wedged in the pulmonary vascular. Now, these blood clots can come from the upper extremities as well, the subclavian, pick lines, central lines, but more or less they come from the lower extremities. And most of these clots do dissolve and have no harm, but some of them can get pretty big and cause some pretty big complications. So depending on these type of emboli, they can be anything from a non-life-threatening or it could be a symptomatic PE, like a massive PE, that comes along with hypoxia, chest pain, and when it becomes lodged in that pulmonary vascular, that's when we restrict if not occlude blood flow to the lungs. So there's a few different types of PEs that we should probably know. You don't have to remember these, but it's really good knowledge. So first we have our low-risk asymptomatic PEs. These are usually kind of noted when the physician does a broad scan or, you know, finds them without really searching for it. Finds a, a benign PE that will usually dissolve within the body and they don't have any cardiac dysfunction. This is something that's not really treated and better left alone. Next, what we have is called a submassive PE. 
Now, these don't yet involve cardiac dysfunction or pulmonary tissue necrosis, but they do exhibit signs and symptoms correlating with the PE. So you might see hemoptysis, shortness of breath, pleuritic or stabbing chest pain, etc. And lastly, what we're mostly going to focus on here is our massive PEs. At this stage, we should probably suspect to see some kind of dysfunction in the form of obstructive shock with hypotension, you know, a systolic less than 90 or your MAP less than 60, severe shortness of breath, and hypoxia. So next up, let's talk about a little bit of pathophysiology of a pulmonary embolism. So there's a few different important points within pathophysiology that we're going to want to remember when dealing with the PE. If we remember anything about the types of shock in school, we remember PE falling into the obstructive shock category. So obstructive shock is basically a physical blockage, i.e. the embolism, that's preventing adequate perfusion to the heart. This will in turn later on down the road cause cardiogenic shock due to RV strain and ineffective pumping of the heart. It is important to note that when we talk about PEs, we talk a lot about the right ventricle, the RV, and we should understand that the right ventricle is the gateway to the lung vasculature. And the RV is small, thin, and usually underdeveloped compared to the left ventricle. So anytime we have a blockage or we have any kind of minimal backflow, we start to see RV strain and ineffective pumping. So when we have a massive PE, something that blocks almost all of the flow into the lungs, we'll see increased pulmonary pressures and we'll for sure see dysfunction of the heart. Now, if you're lucky enough to work within an agency that can do POCUS, any kind of cardiac ultrasound, you may be able to see some RV dilation along with a bulging septum, which obviously is going to affect the LV because it inhibits its pumping ability as well. So let's quickly recap the cardiovascular compromise. You have a PE, which blocks pulmonary flow. This increases pulmonary pressure, which can lead to RV failure due to the increased backflow on the right ventricle. This, as we know, will decrease stroke volume, which in turn decreases cardiac output and lowers your blood pressure. Now, we do know with pulmonary embolisms that there is a pulmonary compromise as well. So next, what we're going to talk about is VQ mismatch. This was super confusing when I first learned it, but it's pretty easy now after studying it for a while. And if you're a visual learner, I can put a picture in the show notes that kind of explains VQ mismatch to make it a little bit easier to understand. But as we know, within gas exchange, we not only need adequate ventilation, but we also need perfusion. So blood flow is just as important as air going in and out. And this is abbreviated as VQ. I guess Q is Latin for perfusion. Not sure. I never Googled it, but it's VQ, ventilation, perfusion, VQ mismatch. We have some kind of obvious, obviously a mismatch there where we're not getting adequate performance. So there's two types here. We have shunt physiology and dead space physiology. So all you need to remember is that shunt physiology is a poorly ventilated alveoli and dead space physiology is a poorly perfused alveoli. So just remember shunt is ventilation, dead space is perfusion. So if we have a pulmonary embolism inhibiting perfusion, what type of mismatch should we suspect? Dead space. So in a PE, we have increased alveolar dead space. We have no issue ventilating, but our perfusion or blood flow is blocked. Further on down the stream, we can expect to see pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary ischemia due to the limited perfusion of the downstream vascular within the lungs. So let's talk about patient presentation. How do these patients present and what should I be cognitive of when taking a patient history? Well, I can tell you right now for personal experience, 
when you have a massive PE, you're not going to get a lot of history out of these patients. Uh, I would keep your uh, questions to yes or no, head nodding. That's the easiest thing for these patients to do. These patients present almost exactly like every STEMI patient you've had. They look like crap. They feel like crap. They're extremely short of breath and they're having stabbing chest pain. So this is what I'm talking about where we misdiagnose PEs all the time. You immediately see this patient and you're thinking massive STEMI. Then you look at your EKG and you realize it's sinus tack and you can't figure out why. So like I said, these patients are going to present with shortness of breath, chest pain, usually on inspiration, possible hemoptysis. I've never seen anyone coughing up blood, but it is possible. Usually pale with mottled skin, unexplained tachycardia, tachypnea, and maybe some altered mental status if we're later on down in the stages with cardiovascular collapse. And that's just due to the hypotension and less perfusion to the brain. In my experience, like I said, these patients usually present fast and acutely, and they need definitive care. So there's going to be different populations that you're going to want to look for that are going to be more prone to a pulmonary embolism. Think of people that are post-ops, especially uh, orthopedic post-op, post-vacation. They've been sitting on a plane for long periods of time where they've had that chance to develop a DVT. Pregnancy patients are always prone to developing clots and DVTs, including women that take oral contraceptive medications. And go ahead and name the obvious ones, obesity, smokers, and obviously all of our bed-bound patients that we find in nursing homes that are not receiving any proactive care for DVTs. So if they don't have the little massaging calf blankets on or anybody doing physical therapy with them, they're always prone to have that clot formation. Now, there are scales and classifications that we can use to assess the risk of particular patients with PEs, but they're not really relative to the hospital world. Now, something you may remember from school that you do want to keep in mind is something called Vercal's, Virchow's triad, however you want to say it. Um, I know it was briefly mentioned in my class, but I, I actually had to look this one up just because I wasn't familiar with it when doing this episode. But there's three parts to the triad, obviously. So you have venous stasis, endothelial injury, and a hypercoagulable state. I'm going to learn to say that word one day. Let's start with the first one, and that's venous stasis. So any kind of stagnant absence flow of blood, like we said, the plane rides, the post-op surgeries, and our bed-bound patients. There's no blood flow, obviously, your increased chance of making a clot. Next is endothelial injury, so your trauma patients, your arteriosclerosis, and as we know, sepsis. Anytime the endothelium of the vessel wall is compromised, that initiates that clotting cascade, so we're at more prone to getting a clot there. And lastly, the word I can't say, hypercoagulable states. So taking any kind of oral contraceptive meds, that increases your risk. Thrombophilia, factor V Leiden's, obesity, Anything that makes the blood easier to clot puts you at risk. So really our main concern in identifying and using any kind of standard criteria is how severe it is. Ask yourself, are they going to die right now? Do I have the resources available to take care of this patient? And remember that this is a perfusion issue, not so much respiratory distress. Now you will see that they will look like they can't breathe, but this is a perfusion issue. So don't think about intubation right now. Innovation is known to mask the real issue. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You don't see the bullet hole anymore, but they're bleeding inside and about to die. Obviously, if these patients code on you, innovation would be recommended. But remember, we need to get them to defensive care and take care of the perfusion issue. 
So just think circulatory compromise along with respiratory distress, not the other way around. Along with knowing the risk factors and taking a good history, let's talk about what we were all taught in medic school, and that was diagnosing, quote-unquote, a PE on an EKG. So studies have shown this is really only about 15 to 20% accurate. I've seen it a few times. Um, sometimes it's really hard to see, but you've heard the classic saying PE equals S1, Q3, T3. So prominent S wave in lead one, prominent Q wave in lead three, inverted T waves in lead three as well. Along with this evidence, you'll see right axis deviation and you may see RV strain. Now this is anecdotal, but I was taught that any kind of tachypnea and tachycardia that is unexplained, go ahead and assume it's a PE if they do have risk factors. But then again, I wouldn't rely on that information. That is just something that older medics have taught me that have seen this a lot more than what I've seen. Now, once these patients are at the hospital, they can run more tests like CTPA, echoes, VQ scans, D-dimers, etc. to figure out if these patients actually have a PE. Since we focus on mainly pre-hospital treatments and education, I'm not going to go over the whole Wells criteria in the PE algorithm, but I will link it in the show notes just so you have an idea of how physicians go through each one of these tests to figure out if they have a PE and if they don't. All right, so we have decided and identified that we have a patient that may have a possible PE. What do we do? Well, we can't do much, unfortunately. Good supportive care is really all we can do. Although ventilation isn't the issue, we should still apply oxygen to these patients. You know, I'm an advocate for entitled CO2. So go ahead and put them on the entitled nasal cannula just to get that reading. Remember, entitled CO2 tells us a lot about perfusion, so we can actually see if these patients are actually perfusing properly instead of looking in that rear view mirror. And although these patients will present in a cardiac presentation, we should avoid those vasodilators like nitro because we can further decrease that cardiac output. Remember, we're kind of RV sensitive on these patients, but I have to say, we can't exactly know if this patient has a PE, so if your protocols state that you treat chest pain and shortness of breath with aspirin and nitro, you have to follow your protocols. This is just the information I'm giving, but remember, always follow your protocols and procedures on treating your patients appropriately. With that, volume management is going to be critical. So we want to increase the preload, but not to a point where we dilate the RV. This pushes into the LV and decreases that cardiac output. Once again, follow your protocols, but I would st probably start with a small 250 to 500 milliliter bolus of normal saline or whatever fluid you have. I don't want to get on the normal saline fight right now, but that's all I carry, so that's what I'm giving. We want to monitor the hemodynamics. We know that's important. If you feel the need to, and if you're allowed to, norepinephrine is the preferred choice in this situation. I've personally never needed a star depressor on these patients, but don't hesitate to call medical control if you're unsure. Like I said, these patients present very wildly. We think it's a STEMI. We don't see anything on the EKG. They look like they're going to die. They are dying, and we just get stressed out. It's If you need help, call somebody. But for any kind of fluid resuscitation, we want to be cautious. In this case, we already have a possible weak right ventricle. We don't want to put any more strain on it than we have to, resulting in cardiovascular collapse. So the number one treatment for these guys is going to be definitive care so they can receive a lysis or an ectomy. So either dissolve that clot or take that clot out mechanically. 
Now, the gold standard for all of these patients is going to be anticoagulation with heparin, either IV or low molecular weight, sub-Q, and warfarin. Heparin is always given first due to warfarin actually being slower acting, so we don't want a slower acting drug while our patient's actively dying. And fun fact, warfarin actually inhibits anticoagulant properties before it actually works as an anticoagulant. So in the beginning, warfarin is going to be the clot's friend, and then later on it's going to kill it, dissolve it, and make everything better. So warfarin is a uh, strong believer in the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now after the heparin has been uh, administered and deceased in hospital, usually people will take warfarin up to two to three months to prevent any further clot formation. Now you may be asking yourself, what if these people are contraindicated to taking any kind of anticoagulant? Well, that's when they move straight down the line to IR, interventional radiology. Usually if they're contraindicated to use anticoagulant, they're also contraindicated to use any kind of lysis. And since we're mentioning lysis, let's go ahead and cover that. So thrombolysis, what we're going to do is basically dissolve that clot, and that's with TPA. These are usually used in the acute massive PEs where we have shock and cardiac instability. So we want to break down the clot and remove it. TPA is the most common one. We don't carry that pre-hospital, but it is given in the hospital, and you may have to maintain it if you do interfacility transport. It's worth noting that TPA does carry a lot of risks with hemorrhage, and if this patient is contraindicated or there is impaired circulation, surgery is needed. So the surgery these patients are going to go through is something called an ectomy, a thrombolectomy, thrombectomy. There's a bunch of different names on it depending on where the clot is and what they're actually doing. In the course of where it's less severe, they can put something in called an IVC filter, basically catches the clot, but we really want to just remove that clot altogether. This is usually done through IR, interventional radiology, with a radiologist. Something I've actually never seen done, but I'm sure it would be awesome to observe one. So let's recap that treatment realm really quick. So simple PE, we wanted to use heparin bridge therapy into warfarin. You have a massive PE with any kind of hemodynamic instability. We want to go straight to TPA or thrombectomy. If we have any kind of contraindications where the patient had a recent stroke or is at risk for hemorrhage, we know that breaking down clots is not a good idea. So we won't be using the TPA. We'll go straight to surgery. So I think this covers really the basis of what we need to know about pulmonary embolisms, how to treat them, how to recognize them, all within the pre-hospital world. Of course, there's going to be a lot more treatment realms with factor 10 inhibitors and just more information out about there about PEs, but that's more of what you would handle as a nurse inside the hospital. For anyone in the back of the truck or doing inter-facility transports, this should cover it all. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to contact me. I hope this episode served you well, and I hope you learned something today. As always, subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes. That really does help out a lot. Thank you guys a lot for the support, and we'll see you next time.